Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Where did that come from, Pastor Sean? The book of Revelation. I thought we were in 1 Timothy. Well, we were, and we'll finish 1 Timothy next week. But last week's message led me to think about the glories of heaven that we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. It was 1972, and it was the Academy Awards ceremony. And there was a particular actor that night, a legendary actor, who had never won an Oscar before in his life. And he was going to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. He had put himself in self-imposed exile kind of during the 50s and 60s when there was that whole red scare with McCarthyism and communism. But they played his retrospective, and once the lights came up and they welcomed this actor on the stage, it was the longest standing ovation in Oscar history. You want to know how long it lasted? Three minutes. The actor... Charlie Chaplin, a three-minute-long standing ovation, the longest in Oscar history. It was February 22, 1980, the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, the famous game where the U.S. hockey team beat the heavily favorite Soviet Union, and the U.S. went on to win the gold medal. But if you remember... It was called The Miracle on Ice. And do you remember Al Michaels' famous line when they won? Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Okay. If you go back and you watch the highlights, that place erupted in just amazing applause and cheering. And and just it went on and on. And one of the greatest moments in the 20th century of sports that Sports Illustrated had listed. So I don't know if you've ever been to a concert or a game or to some event where people just went wild, hooping and hollering and applause and screaming and yelling and and just, it was over-the-top applause. I want you to think about that for a moment. Applause. Longer than three minutes, but an eternal applause that will happen in heaven. So last week, in 1 Timothy, Paul gave us this wonderful vision of who God is, kind of this doxology. In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, he says, Who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So last Sunday night, we're in prayer meeting, and we're talking about this passage of Scripture, and Glenn, one of our elders, says, this reminds me of Revelation chapter 4. And I said, Glenn, you've given me a great idea for a follow-up sermon. So today's sermon is in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, because I want us to not move on so quickly from 
what Paul tells us about this unapproachable God who dwells in glorious light. So let's read the very last book of your Bible. And don't worry, we're not going to get into all the end times prophecies. That's for another day. We're just going to look at the glories of heaven. What's going on in heaven in the throne room? Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And remember, John the Apostle is the one who's received this revelation from the Lord, and he's writing this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The word throne is one of the most important words in the book of Revelation. It shows up over 40 times in the book of Revelation, throne. And so John sees a door leading him up to heaven. So we don't know exactly how this happens, but John is transported into the very throne room of heaven to get a vision of what is going on in glory. And it made me wonder, when was the last time you honestly thought about the glories of heaven? You know, there's so much stuff going on here at earth that we we think about all these worldly things and they can consume our thoughts and our minds. When was the last time you really thought about heaven and the glories of heaven? Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, his throne. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, we don't quite understand the significance of a throne. In our democratic American lifestyle, we've, we've really never had a king except for way back in the day, but none of us has ever really lived under a dictator, a king. So this idea of a throne is really kind of foreign to us. And as a matter of fact, most of us really don't want to be ruled by anybody. We like our freedom. We don't want to have to submit to a throne, to a king, to a sovereign, to someone who's seated on a throne. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He he preached this sermon called Divine Sovereignty. This is kind of a long quote, but I want you to listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, there's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their affliction, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the world as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of our infinite Lord. When we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He will, that is when men turn a deaf ear, for God on His throne is not the God they love. People don't want a God on the throne. The God that they want is their own making. They want a God that doesn't rule, a God that doesn't reign, a God that doesn't intrude. They want a God in their own image, one who's not in control. So John, first and foremost, when he's transported to heaven, sees a throne. 
symbolizing God's absolute kingly authority. Now, it's interesting because as you read the book of Revelation, John doesn't know exactly how to describe these things. He, he kind of uses words like, it's like this, it's kind of like this, it's sort of like this. He's trying to describe the indescribable. Let me ask you a question. What's the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen that God has created here on earth? You've seen with your own eyes. Maybe it was like a wonderful sunset. Maybe it was like a mountain waterfall. Maybe a sandy beach, the, the aspen leaves turning in the fall. Something that you've seen that's like the most beautiful you've ever seen with your own eyes here on earth. That pales in comparison to what John sees in heaven. He can't even describe it. And by the way, if you can describe God perfectly, he ceases to be God. The best thing you can be is like John, like, it looks kind of like this, it's kind of like this. I don't know exactly what it's like, but it's kind of like this. He's in heaven. He's using feeble metaphors to try to explain God on his throne. And, and, and he describes the indescribable. The first thing he does is he compares God's throne to these precious stones, these ancient precious stones Basically, you see there in verse 3, he sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Precious stones, jasper, carnelian, uh, emerald, uh, these, these precious stones emanating brilliant light, rainbow, uh, these, these different shoutings forth, shoutings forth, shining forths of light. Uh, Psalm 104, 1 through 2, blessed be the Lord. Oh, my soul, my God, you're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. These, these rainbow-like precious stones emanating light from the throne really convey this image that God's unapproachable. He's blinding. He's shining forth with this brilliant light. Much of what you see here comes from the, the, the thing that Ezekiel also saw in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 1, 27 through 28, upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, as it were, was the appearance of fire. There was brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Brilliant, overpowering light coming from the throne. Now, as John continues to look at this throne, he sees four images. Four brilliant images that begin to give us a full picture of God on his throne. And the first thing that John sees are the 24 elders. So let's keep reading here. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne... Come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Twenty-four elders. Now, there's a lot of debate on who the twenty-four elders are. 
I'm not going to be dogmatic on this because even commentators can't agree, but I'll tell you what my opinion is. This is Pastor Sean's opinion. You can take it or leave it. I think they are an exalted order of angelic beings who have been ordained by God to be the worship leaders in heaven. David, King David, ordained 24 Levitical priests in the Old Testament to lead the worship in the temple. So encounter to the 24 Levitical worship leaders, I think this is God's entourage in heaven who he's organized, who he has, has set forth as these angelic beings to lead the worship. Again, I may be wrong, but let's keep moving because I don't like to be wrong too long. So second, what does John see secondly? Again, I'm not dogmatic on that. You can disagree. The point is there's 24 thrones and 24 elders and whoever they are, they're worshiping God. Okay. Second, John sees flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder, and peals of thunder. Now, this is scary. Not only do you see light emanating from the throne, but there's thunder and lightning, and it's just loud. This imagery reminds us of what happened in Exodus at Mount Sinai. You remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Exodus 19, 16 through 18, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a deafening trumpet blast, so that all the peoples in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This represents God's judgment upon sin. The power of God's judgment. Thunder enlightening. And then third, John sees, and I'm going to have to explain this, he sees the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, verse 5, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now hear, don't, hear me, there are not seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, okay? This is apocalyptic literature. Seven is a number for completion. Seven's a number for perfection. So when in the book of Revelation, when you talk about the seven spirits of God, it's a metaphorical, symbolic way of talking about the Holy Spirit, and that image comes from the book of Zechariah, because Zechariah saw the lampstand with the seven bowls that were supplied with oil from the olive oil tree, representing the power of the Holy Spirit. So let the Old Testament interpret the New Testament. Let the Old Testament tell us what the seven spirits of God are. Zechariah 4, 1 through 5, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who's awakened out of sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of all gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right, one on the left, and I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God, if you will, is just a symbol for the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the throne room of heaven, right here, you see God the Father enthroned in unapproachable light, and then you see the power of the Holy Spirit also there as well. Thunder, lightning, 24 elders, 
this amazing sight. And then the fourth thing that John sees is he sees what looks like a sea of glass, like crystal. And notice again what he says, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, two other times in the Old Testament, there's a a sea of glass that one of the, the prophets of old saw. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Now, here's the sea of glass above them. And then Moses sees this on Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, 9, through 19, I mean 9 and 10. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. It's a sea of glass representing this expanse that you have to cross to even get to the throne. It represents the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, the holiness of God, the boundary marker, God's separateness, His otherness. Now, when you think about these images that John sees, how flippantly do we often talk about God? How flippantly do we treat God? This is a God who's on his throne, who's surrounded by rainbows, the 24 living, uh, the 24 elders, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, this pavement of glass. Now, we get to the highest order of creation, the four living creatures. And you may ask, well, how do I know that they are the, the highest order of creation? of the angelic realm. Well, they're the closest to the throne. So let's keep reading. There's another group of worshipers there by the throne. And so let's look at just verse 6b. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like an eagle, I mean with a face like a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These four living creatures show up elsewhere in the Bible. Ezekiel calls them the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10. In Genesis, they protect the tree of life. And they're also on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, four is a symbol for completeness in creation. And these four living creatures with wings are the closest to the throne. Now, one has a face like a lion, representing royalty and nobility. One like an ox, a domesticated animal, strength. One with the face of a man, intelligence. One flying like an eagle, representing swiftness or speed. 
And so taken as a whole, these four creatures represent the noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in all of God's angelic creation. Now, why do they have six wings? This is precisely what Isaiah saw. We sang it earlier. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. In Isaiah chapter 6, these winged creatures are close to the throne of what Isaiah saw. Isaiah 6, 2 through 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice what Revelation tells us. It's a detail that maybe you just passed over. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Why all these eyes? Where are the eyes of these winged creatures fixed? They're fixated on the throne. Their eyes are on the Lord. They never take their eyes off of the Lord. I wonder if that's your passion, to always keep your eyes on the Lord. And they sing a song. What's their song? It's very similar to the song that they sang in Isaiah chapter 6. You see it right there in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, anytime you see holy, 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 in the Old Testament, that's a way to emphasize who God is. It would be like taking an underline, an asterisk, and a highlight to emphasize. So holy, holy, holy. To the third power, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. He is the God who was. He is the God who is. He is the God who is to come, meaning he has no beginning. He has no end. He is the unchanging, powerful, sovereign, holy God. But notice the posture of these four living creatures. What do they do in their worship? We can learn a lot from their posture. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. First of all, they fall down, really in prostration. They fall flat on the ground. And then they worship. The word worship there in the original language means to kiss the feet of a dignitary, to kiss the feet of a king. And then they throw their crowns before the Lord. And then they sing another song in verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, O Lord and God. Now, that's interesting, O Lord and God. Domitian was the emperor, the Roman emperor, during this time when John is receiving the revelation. And Domitian, the emperor, was the one who instituted emperor worship. So he made everyone in the Roman Empire worship him, and he made the people call him Lord and God and printed it on the coins. The emperor is not Lord and God. Our God in heaven is Lord and God. Now, this is the end of chapter 4. 
And you've got to ask yourself a question. How can we possibly approach this God? If you have to pass the crystal sea and you have to get past the 24 elders and you have to get past the four living creatures and you have to get past the, the peals of thunder and lightning and the bright shining brilliance, who's ever going to get there? And the answer is you cannot approach this God unless you have a mediator. And we find the answer in chapter 5. So let's just turn the page. Actually, it's a page in my Bible. Maybe not in yours. Chapter 5. What does Paul tell us about Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5? For there's one God and there's one mediator between God, the man, Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 4, he is the unapproachable God on his throne. Revelation chapter 5, the only way you can approach this unapproachable God is through the lamb that was slain. So let's go into chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's the Father, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The scroll represents God's plan of action, his, his, his sovereign plan that he's going to unleash upon the world. And the question is, who's going to walk up and take that scroll out of God's hand? The angel says, who's going to do this? Well, well, nobody steps forth and says, I'm not going to cross all that and go take it out of God's hand. And so John begins to weep at this universal silence. Nobody stepped forward, and so John begins to weep. What's going to happen? Why all the drama? And the angel says, don't weep. There is one who is worthy. Why? Because he has conquered. We get our word Nike. The Greek word Nike means conquer, conqueror. So you can pay, say it this way. There's one who's Nike'd. And so he's worthy to come and take the scroll. And there are two reasons why Jesus is worthy to take the scroll. Here's reason number one. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped is because he is the conquering lion. Notice what it says there. He's in verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered, has Nike'd, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that goes back to Genesis chapter 49, that a king would emerge from the tribe of Judah, and that Jesse, whose son would David, that this king would come from the lineage of David. So it's this imagery of Jesus being a conquering lion. Now think about the fierceness of a lion for a moment. How many of you have ever been to the Denver Zoo? When you walk into the Denver Zoo, one of the first things you see there is the lion exhibit. And they've got the plexiglass there, thankfully. And one time, I got real close to the plexiglass, and the lion's head was like right there. That's a big head. And they started purring. And you're like, ooh, that's kind of scary. And then you saw their paw. That's a big paw. 
Now, they look kind of like lazy creatures. They're like, like laying out there, doing nothing. But how many of you would want to meet a lion in a dark alley or on the savanna in Africa? No, none of us would want to meet a lion. You can hear their roar from like five miles away. None of us would want to meet a lion. It will tear you to pieces. And so what does John expect to see when he turns around? This fierce lion. This powerful lion, the roaring lion, this conquering lion. And so here's the paradox in the book of Revelation. Is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? And the answer is yes. Thanks, Chandler. Yes. He is a lion and he's a lamb. So John turns around and assumes he's going to be greeted by this lion. But what does he see? Here's the second reason why Jesus is worthy of all worship. Because he is the crucified lamb. Now look at the drama here. He thinks he's going to see a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he turns around, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. A lamb standing. Now, why is the lamb standing? Because he's risen. He is the risen Savior. Proof of the resurrection. He's risen from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But even though he's standing, there's marks of struggle. Because notice what it says there. A lamb as if it had been slaughtered, slain. In the original language, that word slaughtered or slain means it was a perfected atonement. It was a completed atonement. Remember what Jesus cried out on the cross? It is finished. He paid in full the price for our sins as the Lamb of God. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 1.29? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We all need the blood of the lamb to enter into the presence of this God. Will you pass the crystal sea on your own merit? Are you going to just waltz in past the peals of thunder and the, the lightning and the, the quaking? Are you going to waltz past the four living creatures and say, hey, dudes, I'm here? Are you going to be able to even look at the blazing holiness coming from the throne of God? None of us can do that because we're all stained with guilt. We're stained with sin. We are rebellious wretches who are depraved, and we cannot come to God on our own merits. We need the Lamb of God, the slaughtered Christ, who stands in the throne room as the resurrected Savior, who is the King. Have you bowed your knees to this King? 
He alone is worthy. So here's the question. Do you want to face this unapproachable God on the day of judgment in your own goodness? What are you going to say to this God? How are you going to plead your case? What evidence are you going to show forth in your life? What absolutely can you offer this holy God on that day to give to him? And the answer is absolutely nothing. You can plead nothing. You can give him nothing. All you can do is fall down on your face and trust in the lamb that was crucified and rose again. The one mediator, the only way. You need Jesus as your Lord and Savior to give you access to this God. But I want you to notice how it ends. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is going to be the greatest applause in the history of the universe. Every creature in heaven worshiping the lamb that was slain. Not a bunch of Hollywoodites standing up for a three-minute standing ovation to a movie star. Not fans excited because their team won the gold medal. But all of creation worshiping the lamb that was slain. Do you fall down? Notice the response. Verse 14. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Twice they fall down in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They fall face down in humility and thankfulness and unexplainable joy. So do you fall down and submit yourself to the conquering king, the reigning king, the lion of the tribe of Judah? Do you fall down before Jesus, the crucified lamb, who was slaughtered and rose again? There's only one response to this God and his son Jesus. And that one response is to fall on your knees in worship and surrender and in humility. You fall down. You recognize you deserve his wrath. You deserve hell. You are helpless and you fall face down. And I don't know about you, but I want to be there at that final scene. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be there when all creation gathers together to worship the Lamb? What's the alternative? The alternative is to be in hell shaking your fist in anger because you did not submit yourself to the Lamb 
and it was too late. This glorious, blazing, powerful, holy God has every right because he sits on the throne to cast you into hell for eternity because you did not bow the knee to King Jesus. So would we all bow before the throne? Would we all trust in Jesus alone? He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the lamb. He was slaughtered for us. And as you bow, it's a day of celebration. We've already been singing. I've heard you sing this morning. It's glorious to be on the front row where I can hear your voices singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've been singing. Now, this is just a small taste of, of, of where we can sing and, and get excited and, and cheer and worship, but just think about how great that day is going to be when we all fall down before the throne and worship our King. And my prayer is that every single one of you would be there for that day. Don't miss out. Bend the knee to King Jesus today. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, when we think about how glorious you truly are, we can't help but be humbled that you would even dare think about saving us. You're on your throne. You're surrounded by thunder and lightning and brilliant light and rainbows of, of living color and a crystal sea and 24 elders and four living creatures. And, and, and Father, when we look at this image, it seems like you're almost unapproachable. How can we get to you? The answer, Father, is we cannot without the lamb that was slain the lamb that came and took the scroll out of your hand, the lamb from the tribe of Judah, the lion, the lamb, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we stand before you today with thankfulness in our hearts that you died for us, you rose again for us, that we might have access to this God. Never in a million years could we produce this in our own righteousness. Jesus, it has to be you. So, Lord, help us to surrender. Help us to submit. Help us to trust. Help us to fall face down on our knees before you as the rightful king who rules all things in power and majesty. Father, help us to be submissive. Help us to bow to the throne, to the king of kings and lord of lords. Father, if there's anybody in this room today that's never bowed the knee, never trusted in your son, never admitted their sin, never called upon your name for salvation, would be today be the day that they do that? Because it's my desire, Father, that everybody in this room join together on that final day when we are around that throne for the heavenly applause that will last and I'm reminded of the song, when we've been there 10,000 years, it'll only seem like a second. We'll never get tired of worshiping you, even after 10,000 years. It'll never get old, because you are worthy. We love you, Jesus. 
We thank you, Jesus. You are our king. May we leave this place with joy in our hearts and confidence to face whatever we face out there because you're on your throne and you rule and you reign and you have a home prepared for us in heaven. It's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.